Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Welcome to this episode. This is Stephen Moe. And today we're going to be speaking with David Harland, who's the CEO of the Eden Project in England. And we're going to learn all about the facility that they operate over there, as well as global expansion plans. And that includes the Red Zone here in Christchurch. Here's an excerpt from that interview. We exist basically to to educate, and and we do that through entertainment means and and we have a concept called education by stealth so you don't realize as you're going around that you're picking up um, bits of information and 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 learnings Um, so it's not formal in that way but if that gets you to think about the world if that gets you to think about the purpose and and think about where we're going then then that's that's what we're trying to do really to to inspire people um, about the living world and how Mm. marvelous it is It was great to chat with David about how the Eden Project is also operating as a social enterprise, as that's become something of a theme on this podcast. And that fits well with next week's episode, where we're going to be talking with Dr. James Austin from the Harvard Business School. And James was actually involved back in the early 1990s with the setup of a social enterprise initiative at the Harvard Business School. So that was way before the term social enterprise had any sort of traction. And he's able to give some insights that are really amazing because he's been involved with the sector for decades. As well as that, he tells us all about his early career in the 1960s when he was working as a Peace Corps volunteer down in Chile. So there's a lot of great content in that episode. If you don't want to miss out, then hit subscribe. And as I sometimes say, this is a word of mouth podcast. So if you find the content helpful, then consider sharing it with one or two others. The real heart behind it is to get good stories out about people who are living their lives with purpose. Now let's get into that interview with David. So I'm here with David Harlan, the CEO of Eden Project. So thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. And we've been working together to try to find a time when you were here in Christchurch to meet, and I'm really glad that we've been able to make something work. Pleasure. Um, so before we get into the Eden Project, do you mind just giving us a little bit of your background and where you're from? Yeah, so, uh, well, born in 1976, uh, I, I come from a place called Cornwall in the southwest of England, So, and Cornwall is uh, far, far southwest, 260 miles from London. Uh, it has a particularly strong identity of, of its own. Uh, my parents didn't come from Cornwall, which was quite unusual back then, uh, but it was a place which, frankly, if you were going to go and uh, do kind of big stuff, you were going to leave, you were going to move away. Uh, and uh, actually that's what I did. I went and studied French and German, would you believe, then became an accountant, uh, and then over time I found myself uh, working within healthcare, and I did about 10 years within uh, learning disabilities, mental health, uh, healthcare work, uh, and then that led on to uh, Eden by a rather circuitous route. And we were talking before we started recording just about purpose and the, the sense of um, you know, what you do with your life. You, you said that you kind of had a realization that you wanted to act with purpose. Do you mind describing that? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I'd love to tell you that I got into healthcare because that was what I felt my calling was or whatever. And um, actually, that, that wasn't the case. I found myself there, unlike my wife, who had always uh, wanted to, to be in healthcare and had realized that earlier. But actually, as time went on, I realized I wanted to work for businesses that uh, actually had some sort of meaning. And there's nothing wrong with businesses that make widgets and all the rest of it. But actually, for me personally, uh, doing things that, that help people uh, that, that had impact um, became the, the most important thing. And, and that was very much how I moved from healthcare to into the Eden Project. 
Yeah. And just describe that, the phone call that you got and you've got this opportunity to go work there. Yeah, so we're back in uh, 2012, and uh, there I am sitting at my desk quite happy, thanks very much. Uh, headhunter rings, and, I, and I'm just about to say, no, no, really, I'm very happy, thanks. And they tell me that the job's in Cornwall, and I was uh, up in uh, near London at that point, and I've been thinking that actually it'd be really nice to have the kids down in, in, uh, in Cornwall in the southwest. Uh, and so I said, go on then, tell me more. <laughs> and uh, then they said, well, it's the Eden Project. And of course, I'd been to the Eden Project many times. And uh, so I started to find out a bit more and um, realized that actually, you know, maybe there was more to, more to my life than just healthcare. Maybe there was, there was some opportunity to do something different. Mm. So you moved there? Yeah, so moved down, um, started uh, 2013, um, and the truth is that, that uh, during 2012, Eden had a really bad year. Uh, London Olympics were fantastic for Britain, um, but if you happened to run uh, an attraction outside of, of London, it was a really difficult time. Um, and so I went from a place where they had pom- promised me, I guess, uh, education on a grand scale and uh, you know, world-related um, uh, activities, so Eden's elsewhere, to a place where actually we had to take some pretty uh, hard medicine, actually, and had to sort our own um, uh, shop out. Uh, and uh, that's what we did. So early 2013, we, we uh, effectively restructured the, the business. But one of the most important things we decided, well, two things we decided. One was we could never get into that situation again. Uh, and the second was that we were going to go for our shots um, because we felt that actually uh, the Eden that had started in 2001 had lost its way a little bit. Uh, and um, not intentionally, it had just become quite comfortable within itself. And we wanted to challenge ourselves and our, and our staff team to really do things differently and innovatively. Mm. Well, let's go into that in a second, but um, I used to live in London, so I'm familiar with the Eden Project, but some people are listening probably maybe haven't heard of it. Do you mind giving an overview of sure. what, what the, the background is and how it came to be and that kind of thing? Yeah, so, uh, so the Eden Project, um, founded in 2001, um, we are a social enterprise, we're an educational charity. Um, we're particularly well known for uh, some very iconic architecture, so two very large biomes, uh, which look like bubbles nesting in a former China clay pit. And the story of Eden is, is that Sir Tim Smith, our, our founder, uh, he realised that there was all of these scars from mining uh, around Cornwall. Uh, and, you know, we had lead, tin, copper and so on, and then China clay. And he found a China clay pit at the end of its useful life. So it was derelict, it was sterile, it was poisoned. Um, and he, he believed that you could actually, uh, you could demonstrate positive change and transformation if you, if you undertook such an act of transformation to take that uh, end of life pit and to turn it into a into a thing of beauty mm. um, and that's what we've done and and uh, you know we've been relatively successful we, we get more than a million visitors a year through Eden even now we've been open uh, nearly 17 years um, 1.9 billion pounds into local economy that's a big deal for, for Cornwall yeah um, so we're we're really proud of it and where that's gone now uh, is that we decided it was all very well having had success in Britain, but if your mission is about connecting people to the living world and, and demonstrating that we're a part of nature as opposed to a part from nature, then actually you had to take that mission out to a global audience. Um, that's why I'm in here in Christchurch. Uh, it's why we have projects in China, in Australia, and in America, and so on. Mm. So what would a typical person who comes to the Eden Project, what would they be seeing when they arrive? And Because you know, for people who aren't able to make the trip, at least not yet, what would they be Sure. Uh, so the, uh, the first thing you'd notice is these bubbles in the landscape. And, and uh, the large biome uh, houses a rainforest in captivity, the largest rainforest in captivity. Mm. 
Um, and the reason that that's there is is uh, to tell the stories of the of the people and the and the plants and how we uh, how we interrelate basically. Um, and so you'll go round, you'll have an experience within uh, within a rainforest environment. You can now, as the trees have grown within that biome, uh, you can actually get up into the canopy. Um, and then you can cool off within the Mediterranean biome, so that's all of the of the plants uh, that, that feature in the Mediterranean uh, zone across the world, so be that Western Australia or, or, or be it the, the Mediterranean that, that we know in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got science, a science centre, we've got an education centre, and we've got a, a beautiful outdoor landscape, so sort of more, um, I wouldn't say they're traditional gardens, they're, they're um, uh, well, they're just beautiful gardens, to be honest. So, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, you can spend on average five and a half hours there. Um, wow. People keep coming back um, because it's changing all all the year round, and we're constantly refreshing. Yeah. And the other stuff we do is we we do a lot of events um, around things like. Uh, we, we have big rock gigs because we want to actually appeal to different audiences. So you'll see the likes of, I don't know, Sigur Ross or you'll see Elton John or Lionel Richie, Brian Adams, this sort of stuff. But we also then try to appeal to a, a different demographic with things like our Zipwire and Adventure Zone. So so lots to do. Right. So it's like a, a theme park for all different ages and stages and lots I, of variety. Yeah, I, I wish you hadn't used the word theme. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's uh, it, to be honest, it's a unique experience. I mean, there, there's a place in Singapore who um, base themselves on us called Gardens by the Bay, which is a sort of Singaporean version. Mm. But really, um, yes, it, it appeals to gardeners, but it appeals to the young. It appeals to the uh, appeals to the old, and we exist basically to 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 educate, and and we do that through entertainment means and and we have a concept called education by stealth so you don't realize as you're going around that you're picking up um, bits of information and 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 learnings Um, so it's not formal in that way but if that gets you to think about the world if that gets you to think about the purpose and and think about where we're going then then that's that's what we're trying to do really to to inspire people um, about the living world and how Mm marvelous it is mm. so there's a foundation there that's deeper than uh, so i just use the term theme park glibly but there's a deeper foundation there of actually wanting to educate people about the environment and where they live yeah very much and and this is about our, our connection uh with nature it's about living within the grain of nature the maori here have um mm. kaitiaka kitanga i think mm-hmm. if i pronounce that right um and you know getting ourselves back into balance because whatever your politics and whatever you think you know no matter where you are in the world it is clear that we're approaching the planetary boundaries in in some respect uh, and we as as the human race have, have uh, you know got to work out how we get ourselves back into balance and so we want to do that we don't want to do that in a preachy way we don't want to point fingers at people we don't want them to stop living their lives we actually want to demonstrate that that through positive change and positive action that you, that you can change and and that's the type of, of learning and education that we're trying to do mm, that's great and is that the, the you use the word social enterprise so is that the the element of social enterprise there or how does that fit in yeah so social enterprise it's, it's interesting people know that we're a charity and they know that we're a social enterprise and, and for me personally the social enterprise part is is more important uh, than the, the charitable bit. Charity is just a means, really, to allow funding to, to happen. Um, and the two words are important because one, we're giving back to society, the, the social element, um, and, and the other of enterprise. I don't want you to think of us as, as uh, not making profit and, and not having a, a capitalist um, intent within our retail and catering and so on because... Actually, if you don't have that, you can't create profits for a purpose, which mm. is what we put, you know, your wallet is your weapon, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so everything that we do is reinvested into the activities that we have, be they the charity or be they for, for society. And I think 
Um, what people miss, and it's been talked about here at the Social Enterprise World Forum uh, quite a lot, is um, things like social procurement. So we spent a long time in the early days of Eden setting up supply chains that could actually deal with supplying, I don't know, tomatoes or sugar or whatever it is for a million people, because that just didn't exist in Cornwall. Because otherwise, if, if you come in with a big organisation like that and you don't set those things up, actually it doesn't benefit anyone in the in the local region. And, and we think it's really important that we, that we get that balance right. Mm. Um, the worst thing in the world, actually, with our sites uh, around around the world, like New Zealand, would be to come in um, we'd say in we'd say in Britain like a cuckoo in the nest. You know how the cuckoo kicks the the, the eggs of the other bird out. Mm. Uh, these ha- the sites that we're developing have to be of their place, and they have to really support that local infrastructure. Mm. So talk through the future and and the plans. Um, yeah, you mentioned a couple different countries. Are there plans to expand elsewhere as well? Yeah, there is. So the um, the first uh, major site is actually in China. Mm-hmm. You know, we we uh, <laughs> we like to play uh, to to pick interesting places to to work. And um, boy, if you're going to start your international expansion, I don't recommend necessarily starting it in in China. It's pretty hard work, mm-hmm. but it's great fun. Um, mm-hmm. And China has got many issues, but I think there's an acknowledgement from um, from the Chinese that they need to sort them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're working in the city of Qingdao which will open in 2020. It's a site designed for, for 2 million people a year. Similar principles. It, it actually tells the story of water. So the site is surrounded by, by uh, rivers on two sides. Um, and it talks. Uh, the site has been designed to deal with the abundance of water, the scarcity of water, the quality of water, and, and actually the power of water. Um, mm. Then we've got, uh, obviously, New Zealand, uh, the, the Christchurch project here. Um, and we're in a really interesting place there. It's in, in what's called the Red Zone, so where um, mm. 7,000 ha- homes were, were uh, removed after the earthquake of, of 2010 and 11. Um, and again, as it happens, that's also about the story of, of, of water. Mm. Um, and But it's also about the story of the land. So with New Zealand, this is the newest country on earth. So, and we want to get people back into into uh, understanding their connection with the land and with with the water. Um, and then we've got projects in um, in America. Uh, we've got a fantastic project uh, in, in amongst the sequoia trees. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you know the, the sequoia, the redwood, in California. Yeah, in, yeah. in California. And, yeah. and uh, we're lucky enough that we're we're acquiring a site there that's got um, uh, two of the largest trees on the on the planet. Uh, and these trees live for three and a half, four thousand years. Mm. Um, and uh, what is amazing when you stand in front of them is, is uh, the word awe and awesome is overused. Here we are sitting in the Ministry of Awesome, which is pretty cool, by the way. But um, the word awe has, has lost its sense. Actually, when you stand in front of the, these magnificent trees, you realize actually they existed before the time of modern religion. Uh, you think about what they've seen within their lifespans. And we're just a sneeze, actually, in, in, yeah. uh, in their life. And so we want to do something in, in the shadow of the giants, effectively, mm. to really allow conversation and, and uh, to allow uh, some, some really interesting debates to happen. That's, mm. the plan there. That's a great idea. My, uh, my father's from Northern California, so we used to visit sort of Yosemite, yeah. that sort of Northern California sequoia and trees. And you're right, there's something about seeing a tree that's, you know, that, that the trunk is bigger than a car. You yeah. know, just that's pretty impressive. And, and like you say, to think that it's been there for hundreds thousands of years yeah and still alive it's still alive it's still growing and and what's amazing is that as as you research you know we're we're a similar age so look Mm. you look back and you remember the hippies of the of the Mm. of the 60s and 70s and talking about things like mother trees and and talking about um how everything was connected yeah man well look modern science is proving that 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 as you walk through a forest actually the forest is sensing you through the mycorrhiza network and that the the trees 
listen, they're not talking to each other, so let's not go too far. But <laughs> they're certainly communicating in some way about how where the best nutrients are and how to disperse them. Yeah. Um, and I always like the image in Lord of the Rings, you know, the, that the trees actually had caretakers and that they could walk around the ants, you know, like that that concept that there's something alive in, in the forest oh, is uh, a beautiful one, I think. It's a, it's a beautiful one. And actually, when you look at some of the legends, you know, here we are sitting in New Zealand and, and uh, look at some of the, the legends of um, the, the Maori and, and Pacifica and so on, that yep. there is that sense of, um, I guess you'd call it guardianship or, or stewardship that, that um, you know, just feels like the right thing to do. And, you know, we had a, it's quite funny, we, we, we laughed and uh, we were talking about this project and, and one of our teams said, ah, nobody hates trees. Actually, turn it around. Everybody loves trees. When and, and you can't, yeah. there's just something about them. <laughs> it's hard to say a bad word about a tree, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've called this um, podcast "Seeds" because my hope for it is that the conversations I have with people, because a seed looks dead, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And it looks like, well, what could spring from that? But actually, you plant it, you look after it, and it can grow into something more. And I hope that the conversations I have with people about purpose and what they're doing would inspire other people to go out and do something different. Definitely. take some positive action and change well so it's a lovely it, analogy yeah and and actually it works for me because uh, with with eden uh we we see that very much as 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 creating platforms if you like so allowing that seed to, to flourish to allow others to kind of play on that yeah um and that's 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 a really important thing yeah well what we're going to do is next time you're in new zealand i'm going to have you on again because we have had limited time today because you're going from here to there to there. And I, I want to make sure we get you back to where you need to be. Right. Um, but it's been a pleasure to have you on. And just to have that high-level overview of what's going on, I think it's encouraging for people to realize that there are initiatives in the world that are looking to educate and make a positive change. So yeah. really well, appreciate your time. Well, Thank no, you. thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon, Steve. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Thank you. I found that chat with David was really fascinating because he combined social enterprise as well as talking about charities, as well as talking about education. And it was really good to hear about their plans for the Red Zone in Christchurch. And I'll be watching to see what happens there, and I hope they're successful. If you want to connect with the team behind the Eden Project in New Zealand, then there's a website for that. And I'll put that in the description of this episode, but it's basically www.edenprojectnz.co.nz. Now, next week, we're going to be speaking with Dr. James Austin from Harvard Business School. And James has been involved in the social enterprise sector since the early 1990s. So it was really amazing to hear his perspective on how social enterprise has grown over the years. Here's an excerpt from that interview. And, and we sat down, and, and if you looked around the scene at that point in time, around 1991, 92, there were a few other U.S. universities that uh, had some nonprofit management programs. So Stanford had a little Center for Nonprofit Management, Case Western Reserve, Yale. Uh, but when we sort of explored the world outside, when we scanned it, we said, you know, the starting point should not be the organizational form. You know, your starting point, why are you doing this? You're doing this because you want to solve or help ameliorate some sort of social problem, societal problem. So that should be your starting point. So look at your problem, and then the secondary, the derivative question is, okay, which organizational form would 
be most effective in mobilizing and deploying the resources to have the greatest impact on that particular problem. Well, that was like opening up the umbrella right? under which you could have nonprofit form, for-profit form, something in between, collaborations. And so it was out of that where where we chose the, the term social enterprise. It was a term that had been floating around in the practice world for a while, uh, but not really in academia. Uh, and so we called it uh, the social enterprise initiative. And it, it really uh, then allowed us on the research side, on the teaching side, on the service side to, to really in, develop courses and explore uh, important uh, intellectual topics to, to sort of develop this, this in some ways more robust uh, approach to creating uh, social value and economic value and environmental value simultaneously. Of all the interviews I've done so far, I think the one with James was probably the most special. And you'll easily see why when I get into that conversation with him next week, as a little bit of my own family history is intertwined with James's history. This is a word-of-mouth podcast, so if you find the content helpful, then share it with one or two others. Until next time!